whole thing, but I want to read just 22 through 33 for us. 22 through 33. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. First section that we're going to look at, look at here is this. is Abraham's inquisition or inquiry and intercession. Does anybody enjoy the process of buying a car? Anybody enjoy that? Anybody good at negotiating? I know we got some lawyers in here and stuff, but anybody good at negotiating car prices and stuff like that? I'll show you, I hate that. I hate it. When I go and talk with a guy who's trying to sell me a car, I, I just hate the entire process. He makes an offer, I make a counteroffer, he goes and talks to his boss, making sure that he's in my line of sight so that he can see like he's working for me with his boss, like, can we get it down? Like, it's a whole like wheeling and dealing scenario, right? Like, I hate the price. He comes back, gives me a price, I'm like, no, 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 you're going to go lower. He goes back to his boss, talks again. It's like, oh, man, it's like counteroffering, you know, offering, counteroffering like that. Well, when, you, when I read this text of Abraham discussion with Yahweh, it feels kind of like that. Like offering and counter-offering in a sense, except in reverse, where the buyer actually comes out on the good end. That's what it feels like when you read this text. It, 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 to put it in a scenario, it's like, will you take $500? Yes. Will you take $450? Yes. Will you take $300? Yes. Okay, I ain't going any lower. $250. That's my last offer. Certainly, I'll take $250. It's like the reverse, the buyer's getting the best deal. And that's what you get here from this discussion with Yahweh and with Abraham. It's like, Abraham keeps going, what about 50? What about 45? What about 30? What about 10? Like, and Yahweh keeps saying, yes, certainly. Yes, I won't destroy it for that many. Yes, yes. And so the question that we need to stick in our minds, because we're going to answer it a little bit later on, is this, why, why is Yahweh, why is God going to these means? Why is he saying yes to all these offers? Doesn't it feel like God should require more and more righteous people in order for Him to spare the city of Sodom rather than less and less people? You would think He would hold a standard and say, no, this many and no less. But it keeps going down. Why does He do that? Well, consider how the conversation begins. So, he, these messengers have come to Abraham 
and talking with him here. And, you know, he's putting a pause on the story of the birth announcement with Sarah and Abraham. And now the Lord has turned his attention to Sodom. And he's going to speak about Sodom. And he's going to bring Abraham in on this discussion about what's going to happen to Sodom. Because Abraham has this special relationship, as we've seen in 12 through 17, about his covenant relationship with Abraham. And so he's given Abraham some top secret knowledge about what's about to go down in Sodom. And he says, look, I need to investigate this situation I need to see what is, what is happening in Sodom. And, and the reason is, if you look here, he says in verse 20, the reason that he's going to go down in, in Sodom and investigate is this, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very great. The outcry of Sodom. We've heard that language before in the Bible, particularly in chapter 4. Remember when Cain kills Abel? Cain kills Abel, and then God comes looking for Abel, and he says, hey, Cain, where's Abel? And you know what Cain does? Because I don't know. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? Do I watch him all day? And what does Yahweh say? He says, the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground. Basically, the outcry is this. It is the voice of the people who are victims of injustice. It's the voice of the oppressed. It's a, the voice of the brokenhearted. And that is what is rising up to Yahweh's ears to hear. He's hearing the cry of the people who are in pain. In Sodom. And this God, He hears things and He considers them and He acts upon them. That's what the entire book of Psalms is about. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you've been crying out for years, maybe your life, because you're in some form of pain or agony or a victim of injustice. Let me just encourage you right now, just, just to briefly pause, is that Yahweh hears. He hears your pain, He's not ambivalent to it. He doesn't care. It's not like He puts His fingers in His ears. He hears our cries. And He considers them. And in His own timing, He acts upon them. As we will see in the next chapter. And so the cries of Sodom go up to Yahweh. And He hears them and He considers them. And He goes down to investigate to act upon them. This is what He does as the judge of all the earth. And so what happens now is Abraham begins this intercession, this petition between him and God. Talking with him. And Abraham's not challenging or questioning Yahweh's character or his nature. Is he really just? Is he really going to lump the wicked and the righteous together and destroy all of them? Is he really going to do that? Is really the judge of all the earth, is he going to act justly? Abraham's not calling into question God's justice or God's character. He's actually, as we read this, he's, God is ensuring us that He truly will act justly. And that He also, He will act mercifully if there were even ten in this scenario. So He's assuring Abraham, God is assuring Abraham that He will go to the nth degree to be merciful if there were even ten people there. Righteous people. Right? There was even a small remnant. And so what you get from here is... That this God is not a capricious, evil, heavy-handed, harsh God who desires and loves to destroy people. That may be been how it's been presented to you in the course of your life. Sodom and Gomorrah is about God's destruction. But actually, putting this little story here about Abraham's intercession, it actually says a lot about another piece of God's character. His mercy. That He is willing to mercifully rescue and save people if there were just ten righteous there. If there were just ten. 
And so putting this little story here about Abraham's intercession, it tells us a lot about God in this whole story. Because people want to use the Sodom and Gomorrah story as, man, look at your God. That doesn't seem just to destroy two cities like that. He doesn't seem very loving. He doesn't seem very fair, very merciful. Seems evil, right? Well, maybe consider this dialogue, this discussion as, you know what? God is actually very considerate. And He's very merciful to even consider saving even one person from Sodom and Gomorrah. Consider that. Maybe consider it like this. Maybe it's more, not an, not an accusation at God's character, maybe it's more of an accusation at Sodom and Gomorrah. That they can't even come up with ten people to salvage the city. They can't even come up with ten people. If I can give you an analogy of how that works, let's say somebody wants to buy me a multi-million dollar house, which I would be okay with. It's for the Lord. Uh, Let's say somebody wanted to buy me a multi-million dollar house. They said, there's only one stipulation. You've got to put up five bucks. I'm like, sorry, man, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can swing it. Just five dollars, multi-million dollar house. That's all you got to, you just got to put up five dollars. I don't know, I just, yeah, I can't. Just get a job for like ten minutes. Like, rake somebody's yard. Like, don't you have a friend? Like, pay him back. Like, anything like Five dollars? No, no, it just, just can't do it. Just can't do it. Sorry, I can't do this. Oh, that's pretty heinous or crazy. You can't even come up with five dollars. You about to get a multi-million dollar house? This is how crazy it is. This is not an accusation against God's character. It's more of an accusation against Sodom and Gomorrah. You can't even put up ten people to save your entire city. That's heinous. That's crazy. That's how far sin has pervaded in the world at this point. So the story is not one to be wielded against Sodom or against God and his character. It actually exposes the vileness of humanity's sin. They can't even offer up ten righteous people. And so to answer this question of why does God not just put a standard, say 50, and no less than that, is because this story, it is about judgment. There is justice going on in here. God is going to judge the world. But putting this story of Abraham's intercession and inquiry there, it shows that even in the midst of a judgment, God is going to be extremely merciful. And as we'll see, He's extremely merciful to even save Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah when they can't even put up ten people. So though the story has probably been presented to all of us as one of just judgment and justice and God being heavy-handed, there is a thread of mercy in this. That God is not obligated to even save one person in Sodom and Gomorrah, yet He chooses to. Second is this. The demonstration of God's justice and mercy. In the first couple of verses in chapter 19, we get some really interesting information. First is this. So the, the men who have come to Abraham and now have come to Lot, we realize that they are now they are angels in 19 verse 1. That they are uh, representatives, emissaries uh, of Yahweh, that they're representing him here in Sodom. But another piece of inter- information is even more shocking. Is this, where is Lot right now? Verse 1, he's in Sodom. You should be screaming in your head, what are you doing in Sodom, Lot? What are you doing there? 
Okay, let's just, let's, let's play back Lot's story for a second. Chapter 13, uh, Abraham and him separate. Lot gets tons of stuff from that. Land, you know, basically servants, uh, all, you know, lots of inheritance, cattle, all these things. And it says that he saw Sodom and it looked really good to him. So he goes over there. So here, here's the progression. He moved his tent as far as Sodom, 1312. He's now dwelling in Sodom in 1412. And then he's saved from Sodom by Abraham in 1416. And now he's back sitting in the gate of Sodom. And now he's got a house in Sodom, right? In 19.1. Clearly this does not bode well for Lot. It, it clearly shows he is not the hero of the story. I, it, to put it, let's <laughs> uh, give you an example. It's like, uh, <laughs> this is terrible. It's like you're, uh, you finding your, your friend who's in a drunken stupor in a bar on, on Bourbon Street. And you go and you rescue them and you, uh, you, you get them sobered up and they say they're going to change their life. Only you find them there next weekend in a drunken stupor. And they, they've gone right back into the same, same old habits. This is Lot walking right back into Sodom where he should not be. And so if you're familiar with the story of Lot and Sodom is that the messengers come, come into town and Lot stops them and greets them. And he says, come stay in my, my town. It's not really safe for you to go into the town square and stay there as he knows how terrible his own city is and the inhabitants of it. So he says, no, please stay with me. Please stay with me. You know, it, it'll be great. It'll be great. So they go ahead and they stay and he fixes a meal. In the middle of the night comes a knock on the door. The men of Sodom have shown up. And what do they say? They say, bring out the men. We want to know them. Which is a sexual euphemism saying, they, they do want to have sex with these men. It is homosexuality. So they're wanting them to bring them out so they can have their way with them. And this sin is not just one person, but it has pervaded all of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why it says here in verse 4, from young and old, all people to the last man. Verse 11, both small and great. So as we already see, sin is heinous in its nature, and it's pervasive in its scope. It's heinous in its nature, and it's pervasive in its scope. What they're doing is terrible, and all of them are doing it there. And so, just a side note for a second, is that there's, there's, a, there's people, in, even in biblical scholarship, who try to really make this, this scene, this story, really digestible by saying, well, you know, the sin of Sodom is not really homosexuality. It's actually the, the Sodom men are just not being hospitable to the messengers. Look, I'm just going to be straight up. I'm not going to give you a whole argument right here. That's crazy. That's not, that's not how the text reads. That's not how other biblical authors read this text. And that's not how the history of interpretation have ever read this text. Of it being them not being hospitable. As you go on, you're reading 19, you're like, man, this is worse than not being hospitable. It's heinous. And so despite how people might twist this to make it more digestible, it is what it is. The sin of Sodom is homosexuality. And they're trying to forcibly have sex with these men that are in Lot's home, the messengers, the angels. And so Lot's going to go outside to reason with them. And as you already know, people who are entrenched in their sin and deceived by it are not the most reasonable people on the face of the earth. 
They're doing illogical things. And so in a last-ditch effort for Lot to kind of get the men to go away, what does he do? He says, here, take my betrothed virgin daughters and have your way with them. That's how he tries to fix the situation. Hey, t- take these daughters. They, they haven't known a man. You can have them. They're yours. So to pacify the city, Lot offers up his daughters. It gets crazier. One evil cannot be cured by another evil. And that's what Lot is trying to do. He's trying to fix his problem and the situation that he's in by doing more evil. And so, just to accentuate how bad this has gotten in Sodom, the men of Sodom reject the daughters. They're like, no, we're not going to take them. And guess what? Since you're acting like this lot, we're going to do worse to you if you don't hand those messengers over to us. We're going to do worse to you. And so the men of Sodom begin pressing in on Lot. And what happens next is that the messengers, they, they pull Lot in and save him. And then they strike all the men with blindness. And what's one interesting fact here is this. You would think people who have been struck with blindness would attempt to kind of scurry home in fear and, and, and being scared. No, what do they do? It actually says <laughs> they're, they're groping to find the door. They're not giving up. They wore themselves out, groping at the door. This accentuates the depths of Sodom's sin. That it knows no limits, it knows no bounds, it knows no boundaries. That's how much they've been deceived. So at this point, as we've seen Abraham's intercession and uh, asking about God's justice and what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and is he going to save, save some righteous people out of here is that at this point, we've kind of all said, look, that question's not on the table if Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, deserve it anymore. Clearly, they deserve it. They've gotten to that point. So the men, the angels, they tell Lot, get out of town, get your family, and get out of here. Because we're about to bring destruction on this town for its sin. And so Lot goes and tells his family, And then his future sons-in-law, what do they do? They laugh. (laughs) They laugh it off. And then Lot lingers. He's like packing his bags real slow, like, no, 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 you know, we're going to Azor, you know, like taking a vacation. He's not urgent about this whole matter because he hasn't taken it seriously what the angels have said. What is wrong with this guy? But think about this, the next, the next thing is in verse 16, is that Lot's lingering after he's been warned, and what happens next? It says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Look how merciful God has been to Lot so far. He's warned him, he's chosen to preserve them, and now he's dragging them out of the city. Because they won't go themselves. Right? And then they're warned, don't look back. Don't ever come back to this place. And so, now Lot begins to, to actually question whether he's going to actually be safe where they've told him to go. They said, go to the hills. You'll be safe there. You'll be outside of the destruction. He begins to question, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Can I go to Zor? I'd rather go over there. I'll, I'll for sure be safe over there. And so the angels 
They allow him to go. Go. And then the next scene that we get is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's that God destroys them by raining sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. And this, this picture of what has just happened, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it sounds a lot like a story that we've already read. The Noah story in Genesis 6-9. through It's like, like Noah, Lot's society is wicked and evil and worthy of judgment. Like Noah, Lot and his family are rescued out of Sodom. Like Noah, Lot's sinful society is rained upon, but it's rained upon with fire and sulfur and not water. Like Noah, the cities, the valley, the inhabitants, even the vegetation is destroyed. It's a reversal of creation. So the parallels are stunning from Genesis 6 and here. But they say something. They say something larger. This whole judgment scene of God bringing justice to Sodom and Gomorrah. It says God takes sin very seriously and that His threats aren't empty. When He warns, He's serious. Because sin is opposing or putting yourself in opposition to God. That is what sin is. And He takes that very seriously. And so the scene of judgment, just like in Genesis 6-9, through is we're seeing God bringing His Word to fulfillment to say, I am a just God and I cannot let this stand. I will not let this opposition stand. His warnings are not empty. And so as I've already said, people use this story as a weapon to wield against God's character. Oh, He's evil. He's heavy-handed. He's harsh. But do we ever consider just how merciful it is for Him to save even one family from Sodom and Gomorrah? Number three, you can take them out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of them. You ever been driving somewhere, and you get to your destination, and you say, how did I get here? Anybody had that experience? It's like you're driving so mindlessly, and you're like, man, what am I doing here? That's the feeling I get from 1933 38. Let me just read this for you. Starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and lie with him, that we may preserve offering, offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot become pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger son, younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That's what I mean by, you know, that illustration of you know, driving somewhere and you're like, how did I get here? You're reading through the point of the story and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do we get here? This story is crazy. And we thought we've already seen crazy up until this point in Genesis. Where do we get to a point in the story of the world 
where we think it's morally acceptable and okay to have an incestuous relationship with our father. It just shows you the unraveling of the world and how sin pervades. Right? It's sin. And so, a couple of indicators tell that something is wrong. Because look, in 1930, he's gone to, the, to Zor and then he leaves Zor. And he's afraid for some reason, so he goes to the hills. And now he's living in a cave with his two daughters. Again, think about where Lot came from. Having great land, tons of sheep and oxen, herdsmen to follow him. And now he's living in a cave. It's kind of like, man, that guy used to have everything. Now he's living in a van down by the river. That kind of thing. Look at where he's come to. His location indicates something has gone tragically wrong in this world. And not only his location, but also look at what, the actions that are going on. Something's gone wrong. The daughters look at their present situation. And they say, look, it seems optionless for us right now. Uh, we can't have any kids. There's no men. So let's, let's get our father drunk and let's, let's lie with him so that we can have kids. They survey their situation and they think it's optionless. So let's just do this. This morally revolting plan. And, and just to give you a side application. Is that faithlessness is typically demonstrated in these moments where we think there is no other option. Is that we're put into a scenario and we think, man, I've surveyed the ground and, and it doesn't look like to be any option, so maybe I'll just skew the numbers here a little bit. Maybe I'll bend, bend here morally, ethically, biblically, because it seems optionless. It doesn't seem like there's a good road here. Lot's done that, and now his daughter's. He's at the door, and the men are pressing in on him, and so he's like, how am I going to get these men to go away? I'll give them my daughters. And now his daughters have the same question. We don't have any kids. How are we going to fix this? Hey, looks like we need to lie with our father. Faithlessness, the, the litmus test for being faithful is usually in those scenarios where we think that there are no other options. But what biblical faithfulness says is this, we trust and we obey, and we are patient and wait. That's biblical faithfulness. So the, the daughters, they get him stone cold drunk, and seems like he might be willing to give in to this, to get drunk. And so why do we, why do we get this story? of This incestuous relationship. Why couldn't it have been left out of the Bible? Well, I think for two reasons is this. You just... You find out how far sin will take you. And the second, second thing is this, is that it reminds us that God did save them out of Sodom, a place. But Sodom was deeply still in them. Sin runs deep in our veins despite our geographical location. Let me just give you an example of that. Is that I've been out of Grant Parish for close to 10 years now. And uh, I don't think I have any more of the tone, uh, the mannerisms, the, the inflections, the, you know, the, the, the cares and concerns of what Grant Parishians have. Um, and, and there's a girl who actually lives in Baton Rouge who's actually from Dry Prong. And she, we were actually talking with her one day, me and Myra, and I said, I just don't think I'm like Grant Parish people anymore. You know, anymore. And I don't think I talk like them. She says, yes, yes, you do. 
And I felt convicted. I was like, I've been trying to disown these people for the past 10 years, and I'm still like them, right? But that's the case with Lot and his daughters. Yeah, they're outside of Sodom, but Sodom is still deeply within them. Its character and its nature. Yahweh's mercifully rescued them from the deplorable and wretched city of Sodom, filled with its sinful inhabitants, only to find that they are now participating in the very things that Sodom was destroyed in. They're out of Sodom, but Sodom is not out of them. Sodom still has a deep grip on their hearts. So Lot's lingering. Lot's wife looking back, being turned to a pillar of salt. Now Lot's daughters, all to show that sin runs very deep in our veins. And it doesn't change when we just walk out of a geographical location or a place. And if, if the lo- location of where uh, you know, Lot is and uh, the actions done by the characters in the story don't tell you that something is wrong, the outcome of this story tells you what's something wrong. So these, his daughters have babies, and they have the children who are now going to become the forefathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. It's like your two worst enemies. These people cause Israel all kinds of problems in the story of Israel. And so they look back at Israel and they say, man, why are these guys so mean to us? Why do, they, why do they want to destroy us? Well, look at where they came from. Look at their origin story. And so, to kind of pull all this together, because there's so much information that's going on here, and we, we've just kind of skied across it a little bit, is that this story is multidimensional. Yeah, it is about judgment. God judges people for their sin. But God, there also is a thread and a, a theme of mercy in here. And there's a couple applications we can take from this. And here's one. The degenerating effects of sin should be a warning to not engage with it at any level. To see where sin will bring a person should be a warning to us not to play with it. Not to toy with sin in any form. Many of us in here think that we can play with sin if it's kept at a calm, if it's kept at bay, if it's common, if it's kind of not substantial, if it's controllable, be warned. It will overtake you. You are not that strong. We are not that strong. Sin is much more powerful than you think it is. Don't toy with it. Because look at where it's brought the story of Genesis. We go from Genesis 4 where a brother is killing a brother, now to Genesis 19 where daughters are sleeping with their father. Look at that. Look at where sin brings you. And so, sin doesn't stay inactive. It's not stagnant. It grows and it progresses and it develops. Be warned. Please. So don't play and toy around with sin, whether that be pornography or alcohol abuse or emotional affairs with coworkers or gossip or envy or slander. Don't toy with it in any form. Many of us, and probably in here, probably, probably need to treat it as like when people get on a new diet and they go home and they rid their shelves of any temptation that might cause them to break the diet. This is what we need to do. 
Maybe we need to go home and consider, are there any temptations in my life right now, in my home right now, that might cause me to walk and stumble into sin? You need to rid your lives of that. We all do. Constantly being self-evaluative. To say, what are the things in my life that might, might lead me into more and more sin? And then ask yourself, are we doing the things, the necessary precautions to keep sin at bay, to fight it? Are we reading the Bible? Are we gathering with God's people? Are we praying? Because fighting sin is, is twofold. It's ridding ourselves of one thing, and it's doing things to fight against it so it doesn't overtake us. We cannot sit passive on the sin game. Next is this. Is that scenes of judgment should provoke us to faith and repentance and obedience. It's like jumping in a cold pool. It's a, it's a shock to your system. The scene of judgment here in Sodom and Gomorrah, it should be a, a shock to your spiritual nervous system. Look what God does and how He looks and views sin. Destruction. Because this is exactly what, what Jesus talked about in Matthew 11. This is how He used Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to the crowds, people. He's saying, if Sodom and Gomorrah had the works done in their towns, the ones that have been done here, they would have repented. But guess what? You had the works and you haven't repented. It's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a warning. It's a shock to their systems. And when we read this story, it should be a shock to our system. What God does with sin. He judges it. And next is this. And I want to take a couple minutes to develop this because this is sensitive. Is that I would be a neglectful pastor not to talk right now about homosexuality. To skim over that. Because we have to rethink this as the church. It's sensitive in our culture right now. It's a little bit hostile in our culture right now. Things are changing. Waves are coming in and out. And honestly, there a lot of us, and I'll, I'll put myself in this category, I, I feel a little, I, I don't know where like to go in this, this conversation a little bit. How to approach it. But I think we have to stand with two pillars. And Garrett Kell has written an incredible article on this. If you'd like to read that, I can send that to you. But Garrett Kell has put these two pillars up. He says, the church has to do two things. We have to be convictional, and we have to be compassionate. When we're speaking about or to the gay community, the LGBTQ homosexual community, we have to be convictional, convictional and compassionate. Because this is what Jesus did. This was Jesus' approach to all sinners. Is that He was convictional. And that it's not loving for us to throw aside the truth. And that's where we fall off the boat sometimes. Is we don't want to be harsh. We don't want to be heavy handed. We want to be loving and, and, uh, and, and receiving of people however they come. And to the neglect they will say we're not going to speak the truth. That would harm people and that would hurt people. What I would say to you is this. Jesus would say that's not loving. To lay aside the truth. What is loving for all people of any, of any sin form is that the church, we have to speak the truth. And the truth is, homosexuality is a sin. And like all sin, it is deserving of death, hell, and God's punishment and wrath. It is a sin. It is a perversion of God's original design for marriage and for human beings. This is not how He created us to function. And we have to speak that loudly into the culture. 
Because there are many, even Baptist churches, who are giving in to these things. It happens. Who say, you know what, we're, we're going to be LGBTQ friendly. I want to be LGBTQ friendly, but not to the point where I'm going to say it's not sin. That's different. And so we have to be convictional and say, these things are sin. Because it is not loving for us to say anything differently. Second is this, we fall off on the other side and we're not compassionate to these communities. Rather, we're very comfortable with speaking slanderously or spouting off rude, mean jokes concerning homosexuality and LGBTQ and same-sex marriage. It's very easy for us to to be condescending to these people. I would say that's not Jesus at all. So when Jesus in the Gospels approaches people of, din- of different sin forms, He is compassionate. And he is kind. He's not condescending. So, we have to be compassionate. And we have to be convictional in this scenario. Because, I want to read this to you. This is what Garrett Kell says. The Gospel is God's power for, for salvation. The good news for a gay man or a woman is the same good news for a straight man or a straight woman. Homosexuality isn't the chief sin. Unbelief is. The Lord Jesus died for all types of sins and for all types of sinners. So before we go off saying we're not going to speak the truth and we're going to be loving, or you know what, they, homosexuals have a different, different you know, area of hell for them waiting. Because that's not convictional and that's not compassionate. We need to speak like Jesus and act like Jesus. And that's being saying homosexuality is wrong. But guess what? The gospel is for all people of all sins. Homosexuality included. And so as the culture comes and tries to persuade and twist our arm to say, give in on this issue. Give in. We can't. The gospel is on the line. We can't. Next is this. Following Jesus requires a break completely with our former lifestyle. In Lot's wife's case, she looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. I think Jesus might be referring to the story and later in Luke's gospel when he says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit. Looks back. And so what Lot's wife is doing is that Sodom is deeply ingrained in her where the former lifestyle looks so good she doesn't want to go to the rescue, the refuge. And what I would say is this for all of us, is that being a disciple of Christ, it's not one foot in the door and one foot out. It's total and complete submission. So consider areas maybe that you have not given full and complete submission over to Jesus Christ. Your work, your family. Because all things, even sexuality, are under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we are to submit all areas of life to Him. And so in this, you may be here today You may have recognized you're a sinner. 
whatever form that take, homosexuality, adultery, slander, gossip, gluttony, any of those things. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is not just about homosexuality, but it should make everybody nervous and unhinged because it is the reality for all the unrepentant people. Sodom and Gomorrah is not just the reality of homosexuals, it's the reality for all the unrepentant and who don't trust in Jesus Christ. But like Lot, and like Zor was for Lot, there is a refuge. And it's not a city. It's a person. It's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is Him. He has come to rescue, to save, to redeem, to restore, to heal of people of all different types of sins. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds like that's got us all. But here's how he ends. And I'll speak this over all of us. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is the hope that we have for every sinner of every form is that Jesus has come to wash and cleanse us from our sin. And today, wherever you may stand and whatever sin you might be in, you can find that healing and that cleansing and that forgiveness and that redemption and restoration in Him, Jesus Christ. And I call you, if you are nervous by any point of of Genesis 18 and 19, to come and repent of your sin and take refuge in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. And that God, in it, the hope of the gospel is made clear. That Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Of which I am, Wes McKay, the foremost. I feel it. God, we thank you that even today you give us a chance to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And I pray we would do so. And I pray that we would leave him here totally submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Where that affects every area of our life, of our thinking, of our speech, and of our cares and concerns and loves. God, be with us now as we sing and worship realizing that you are a holy God, worthy of praise. Amen. Please stand as we sing.